We had my parents helping out initially. I was as I was navigating, you know, I was in 2013, I had to sit down for my oral boards. So for the first six months of Harrison's life, I was taking care of him, working full time and then studying for boards. So my mom and dad basically, they literally lived at our house. You're listening to the Mommy Labor Nurse Podcast, where you'll gain the knowledge and confidence you need to erase the unknowns of pregnancy and birth and rock the newborn days like a boss. My name is Liesl Team. I'm a fellow mom, labor and delivery nurse, and your host. Each week on this podcast, you'll hear a mix of birth stories, expert interviews, and other fun pregnancy and birth-related content. As a reminder, anything you hear on this podcast is not medical advice. Please see mommylabornurse.com slash disclaimer for more details. And now let's get into this week's episode. Hi guys. Happy Monday. Okay. So what do TikTok and anesthesia have in common? Do you know? (laughs) Well, nothing really, unless you're my friend Maggie, who joined me for this week's episode. Dr. Magnolia Prince is a board certified anesthesiologist from Wisconsin And at the time of this recording, she had over 800,000 followers on TikTok, but I bet when this airs, she'll have close to a million. On her page, she shares everything from evidence-based info about anesthesia and epidurals to family life, and will even jump in front of the camera for a TikTok dance or two. (laughs) In this episode, I sat down with Maggie and we chatted about all things anesthesia, especially as it relates to birth. You'll learn more about epidurals, what it's like to have a spinal place, her call rotations, and so much more. It was so refreshing to get to sit down with someone who places epidurals and assists with anesthesia in the OR during every single shift. She really knows her stuff, and that's exactly why I wanted to bring her on the show. So without further ado, let's chat with Maggie about all things anesthesia. Wondering what you need to do to stay on track during each week of pregnancy? Not sure what you need to be learning or researching along the way? I can help. Sign up for our free weekly pregnancy series to get tips, advice, and resources tailored to your exact week of pregnancy sent straight to your inbox every week. Sign up at mommylabornurse.com slash I am pregnant to get your first email today. See you in your inbox real soon. Hi, Maggie. Welcome to the Mommy Labor Nurse Podcast. Thanks so much for being here today. Thank you so much, Liesl, for having me. It's a pleasure. Yeah. So Maggie, can you start by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and what you kind of do on social media? Because I know you are on social media like I am. So what you kind of do and what your background is and who are you? I said it in the intro, what we're going to be talking about today. But if you could just introduce yourself, that would be lovely. Sure. I am Magnolia Prince. Uh, Most people call me Maggie. I'm a board certified anesthesiologist. I'm in private practice in southeastern Wisconsin. I am also a mom of four children married to another physician. He's an orthopedic surgeon. And one of the main things that I do on social media is just kind of debunking a lot of the myths and misinformation that we see that tend to go viral on social media. And so my job is to kind of debunk all of those things, show the evidence behind why I'm, you know, choosing the opposite stance and also just encouraging people to continue to look further into these myths. Also just on another 
off brand thing, not off brand, but on another side note, I'm also there to kind of just be, just have a behind the scenes look on what it's like to be a physician, what it's like to be a physician married to another physician, what it's like to be a woman in medicine, all of the crazy things that go on with it. I love it. I love it. Let's start off with that. I know I didn't ask you this in the intro, but what is it like being married to another physician? Like what are your time? Like, do you guys work at the same time or does one of you work night shift or one of you work day shift or like, what is that? even? Yeah. I mean, I always make the joke that our lives, I mean, our life is like a goat rodeo. I mean, (laughs) to be honest, he is an orthopedic surgeon. He works full-time and full-time for private practice. Orthopedic surgeons range anywhere from 60 to 70 hours. And that's just on his choice. And people don't understand that it's not just surgery, but there's a lot of, you know, paperwork that needs to be done, you know, dictations that need to be completed and notes that he has to finish up. I mean, I would say like two weeks ago, he stayed up till 2am finishing up a stack of notes. And like, people don't consider that that's on his own time. I used to work full time and full time for my private practice group was 60 to 65 hours. And we just hit a point where we're just like, we can't do this. Somebody needs to be home. And so my schedule now is I'm a part-time for my group. And so I'm one week on and one week off. And when I'm on, I'm on, I take all the calls, all the lates, all the cases. Mm -hmm. And when I'm off, I have that week off to be with the kids, do all the household things, do all the errands, the appointments, all of that stuff and manage the household. We could not do this without my amazing or our amazing nanny. She is the unicorn. She is the super glue to our household. And (laughs) she actually communicates a lot of the times, you know, like John said this, is that, you know, is this what actually is going on? Or Maggie said this, and she actually kind of puts it together and like keeps us running like a well-oiled machine. So she is, she's the glue. She is our super glue. We could not (laughs) live without her. And I tell her all the time, I don't care if my kids are in high school or going off to college, you are staying with us. <laughs> you're going to be my fifth child, right? Like, exactly. I'm just going to adopt you. No, into she our is family. like my <laughs> wife. Like she's my wife. Nice. Like seriously, she is the best, but yeah, it comes with its own challenges. Definitely in terms of like juggling the schedule, but you know, in terms of like what we talk about, obviously without breaking HIPAA, we can vent yeah. to each other and understand where the other person is coming from. I'm more understanding of his late nights and things yeah. like that. So there are advantages to that. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. No, I'm sure my husband is not medical at all. Like mm-hmm. he's in sales. He does, you know, that like very, very non-medical and he's sure. very squeamish with everything. So like, <laughs> I can't talk to him about, right. like I have other friends that I vent to and sure. other, you know, other medical friends really that I vent to about that sort of thing. But like me yeah. and my husband do not, she's <sighs> like, no, I don't want to hear anything. And I'm like, it's okay. I'll talk to Jenna about it or I'll talk to <laughs> Tiffany about perfect. it. <laughs> yeah. So. He'll, he'll just sit there and like, you know, just let me vent, which is it. really nice. He's yeah, yeah he gets it. Cool, well, sure. I want to talk about social media really quick. Cause sure. like you said in the intro, you are all about, you know, you're on TikTok. I, mm-hmm. I said it in the intro to you before we started recording that I've been mm-hmm. following you on a TikTok for a while and I love your TikToks. So I want to know now that Instagram's starting to, you know, have this more of a real format and they're starting to be TikTok. What do you prefer? Do you still love TikTok or are you starting to get into Instagram or you like both of them? I, I'm probably going to get hate. I love TikTok. I do. I do too. I, <laughs> it's just so much easier. There's not yeah. as much pressure to be yeah. perfect. You can, you know, put out a message like really quickly if you want to. Like yeah. sometimes I'm like in my pajamas and I'm like, oh, I want to do this or like I want to talk about this and I do it. 
where I feel like, you know, writing out, like, especially before Instagram was focusing on reels, like writing out paragraphs, my gosh, I'm like, uh, someone's going to be a grammar police and I'm going to make a mistake. And, you know, it just seems like the TikTok audience, maybe because it's a younger demographic, they're more forgiving. Yeah. Also, you know, and don't even get me started on Twitter. I want to delete my Twitter account because like, it just, I'm not even it, on Twitter. I can't, I can't. It just seems such a meet, it, you know, and my, some of my colleagues are on there and they really, really like it. And, you know, I just think it's the way you consume media. And like, for yeah. me, it just seems like a really mean spirited place. And I just don't need that energy. Yeah. And I feel like over any little thing you'll get nitpicked. And I'm like, I can't do that. Like it just hurts my heart. So I prefer TikTok just because it's ease. And it like, it seems to be, you know, things tend to get more views than Instagram for sure. That's for the place sure. to be. It's way easier to go viral and just get followers mm-hmm. and, you know, just like share your message for sure. I've had weird videos like get tons and tons of views I, and I don't so even weird? have that many followers on there. Like I just kind of post stuff right. that I would post on Instagram, but it's like right. one of them will do randomly really, really well. So yeah, I'm a big fan of TikTok too. I'm starting to like, as other people who work for me do other things, sure. I'm starting to like be able to devote a little bit more time on TikTok. So I like it. It's fun. Like you said, it's just, it's easy to get your message out there and just be in front right. of the camera. So, exactly. well, I want to know why you got into anesthesia because, you know, when you go to, I'm sure you go to medical school, like, Correct. like any other physician, right? Right. Right. So what made you get interested in specifically anesthesia and what was your schooling? Like, what was like your residency like after med school? Okay. That's a three-part question. So I'm okay. going to write parts of those down. <laughs> okay. So the first part is why did I pick anesthesia? Yeah. So during our third year um, rotations, and I did medical school at the University of Wisconsin, so not far from where I practice now, but you go through every major area, pediatrics, general surgery, and all of the things that, you know, get a good knowledge base of what it's like to be a doctor in all these different fields. And anesthesia was actually my last rotation. And it was something that I was not even remotely considering because I hate to say it. I had some preconceived notion of what anesthesiologists actually do. Yeah. Like they don't like patients and they only put people to sleep. Exactly. They're just like sitting there, like, just like, you know, rolling their eyes and like, not like, you know, paying attention to the stock market and not really being engaged and they don't like patients or whatever. So I also had that stereotype in my head, but every rotation that I did as a third year, I went out of that rotation being like, wow, that's so interesting. Like I could see myself doing that, but It wasn't until I got into my anesthesia rotation where I was like, wow, I really feel like these are my people. Yeah. The people that I made fun of and said that they just sat there and like looked at the stock market or were just, you know, on their, like reading a book and not paying attention. I think it's because we make it look really easy and the people that go into it, like, I don't know, they're just some of the coolest people. So it really was more of a feeling Mm -hmm. and I loved being in the operating room but Mm -hmm. I did not want to be a surgeon. Mm -hmm. I really love procedures. I don't really like clinics that much. So that was another thing, but I really love talking to people. I mean, think about it. I have two minutes to get someone's trust yeah, and to have them trust me. And they literally are like, okay, I trust you. You can go ahead and basically cease all bodily functions and take over while they're cutting me open. And then I expect that you are going to revive me and, you know, take care of me like in two minutes. Yeah, exactly. So 
that's kind of cool. You do need to have really good bedside manner in order mm-hmm. to be able to do that job well. And to also like, it's a, people are in a very vulnerable spot when they're in labor or when they're about to have surgery. Yeah. And it's an honor for me. Like, it's really a privilege that I can take some of that worry away. And what I tell all my patients is you are not paid to worry. I am. Give yeah. me all your worries. Yeah. Believe me, I have plans Aww. A through G. I have a plan for this. If this happens and this happens, like that is my job. Yeah. Please let me do the worrying for you. So what was my med school like? I mean, it was shocking. It was a, it was a total like, oh my God, I did not expect it was going to be this challenging. Okay. I mean, yeah. I really did enter a state of depression in between my second and third year. Like, let's not, let, I'm not even going to like sugarcoat it. It was yeah. like crazy. It's yeah. so competitive. The amount of knowledge that they expect you to have in a short amount of time is just insane to me sometimes. And medicine is always evolving. So there's new studies and new landmark things that we have to learn about. I mean, like even my partners now who graduated in the 90s and or late 80s and early 90s, like they had to relearn how to do nerve blocks using ultrasound yeah. because they didn't have it back then. So I'm yeah. sure there's going to be a big change when I'm, you know, in my 50s and 60s. Something. Yeah, something. And residency was, it was fun. The days and the nights were long, but the years went fast Yeah, because we were just so busy. And did you have kids? Like when did you start having kids? I waited until my husband was done with residency before we started, you know, really trying. So I graduated in 2012 and from residency and then I did a one-year fellowship and actually became pregnant towards like the middle of it. Okay. And then had Harrison my, I guess now my second oldest, because we adopted our oldest in April of 2013. And then I was living in Wisconsin for a while and John had to figure, you know, finish the last you know month of residency. Mm-hmm. So I kind of waited. And the, one of the reasons why is because we didn't have family in Michigan. Yeah, that's tough. It's so tough. And to be part of a two physician household and not have support would have just been very overwhelming. So when did your nanny start? Like back then or did you have So we had my parents helping out initially. I was as I was navigating, you know, I was in 2013 I had to sit down for my oral boards. Mm-hmm. So for the first 6 months of Harrison's life I was taking care of him, working full time and then studying for boards. So my mom and dad basically they literally lived at our house and then yeah. after my boards were done that's when I started focusing on trying to find, you know, permanent childcare. Yeah. And our unicorn nanny is our third nanny, but she's been with us for almost 3 years and the other nice. ones they just lasted a year. And not that there was anything bad with them. It was just like it wasn't a perfect fit. Yeah. Yeah. And that's okay. It's so tough. You got to find the right person for you and they have to find the right Right. family for them. Exactly. Yeah. And when you know you have the right one, because it's like, you know, they're like family. And like Amy, our nanny is, she is family. She is family. So yeah, that's amazing. All right. Well, I want to talk about C-sections and epidurals today. Okay. Because those are like the primary things that mamas Mm -hmm. that listen to this podcast are concerned about. So let's start with C-sections. Sure. Can you run through like your primary role 
if a mom is having a C-section, I want to talk about scheduled C-sections. And then what if you get a call from the charge nurse, them saying we're going back to the OR, what does that process look like? Oh yeah. And they're completely different. Let's go, let's go through it. Let's go through it. (laughs) And uh, I don't know if you know this about me, but I've had three C-sections myself. So I feel like I'm kind of intimately aware of what it's like to be the patient and then what it's like to be on the other side. Yeah. So when it's a scheduled C-section, for whatever reason, things are all way smoother. And just comparing my first C-section, which was unplanned versus my second one, I decided to just do a planned C-section. Mm-hmm. It was night and day. Yeah. So scheduled C-section, usually I, so I'm in private practice. We have a physician only model. So I don't have an assistant or, or CRNA or AA with me. Okay. So I meet the patient usually 30 to 40 minutes before they're about to go back to the operating room. I go over their medical history, do my physical exam, and then explain what my role is and what I will be doing for them. And when it's scheduled, 99% of the time, we're going to go ahead with a spinal Mm -hmm. unless there is a contraindication to it. Mm -hmm. And at our hospital, we then... For me, for a scheduled one, I'm in the room setting up as the nurses bring the scheduled C-section patient back. Mm -hmm. And that's where we do the spinal. And the spinal itself literally will take one to two minutes, but it's the setup. You know, everything has to be sterile, sterile gloves. Your back is sterilized with Mm -hmm. the cleaning solution. Um, I do have an anesthesia tech that helps me with positioning and the nurses help me with that too and all the monitors and whatnot. And I, you know, and I usually try to ask the patient, I'm like, how much detail do you want? Do you want me Mm -hmm. to go through every single step with you? Because some people are like, I don't want to know. Just tell me when you're going to poke me. And others are like, yes, I want to know. And so I just kind of get a feel for that. And I usually just try to lighten the, you know, because it's a scheduled one that they've probably already had one before. So they kind of know what to expect. So I'm asking about nursery themes and things like that. (laughs) Other things. Other things. Just trying to get their mind off of it. So once the actual spinal is done, we lay them back down. We make sure that all the monitors are back on. And I'm there the entire time from the minute you are in the room to when I deliver you to pack you. I basically don't leave. But why am I there, right? Like the spinal's working. Everything should be good, right? Like why do I need to stay? There's, you know, the OB who's operating. Well, here's the thing. As with anything with medicine, there are side effects. So a lot of my job is making sure that the patient has hemodynamic stability, that your heart rate is good, that your blood pressure is good, that you're not feeling nauseated from the spinal, and that you're not having, you know, areas of patchiness because the spinal you know, like has this little area that it didn't cover, or the spinal may not have gone high enough. So what do you do then? Or the spinal may not work because, you know, it, it does have a quick onset, but for you know, there's when we line down to the prep time and everything, and we're testing levels and we just trust that it's going to get to a certain level. And we get a, you know, what I mean by checking the level is the dermatomes. We just Mm want to make sure that it's risen appropriately. Mm -hmm. There are times like they, the dermatomes are fine, but you know, they may still feel a little, you know, discomfort. And then we have to address that. So I'm there chatting them up, making sure they're comfortable taking care of any side effects, maintaining hemodynamics and mm-hmm. assisting the o, you know, OBGYN with anything they need to and there because of emergencies. You yeah. know, we expect that everything goes smoothly, but if it doesn't, I'm there. I give blood, I put in more IVs, I help mm-hmm. with the baby. 
anything. Yeah. Anything. Just in case. Or, or if I'm they have to. Case. Yeah. And if they have to go under general really quick for exactly. some reason, you're there. Exactly. Yeah. So what about when the procedure is complete, like getting mm-hmm. into PACU? I know sure. that's usually, so at my hospital, usually we have CRNAs. So mm-hmm. we communicate more with the CRNAs as sure. they're bringing us to PACU. So what is sure. your role then bringing them out to PACU? So what I do when I bring them out to PACU is I make sure that they are completely stable, mm-hmm. right? All their vitals are good. Make sure they're, you know, not complaining of any symptoms like of what we worry about, the local anesthetic systemic toxicity, mm-hmm. because that could present even later than, mm-hmm. you know, the initial dose of that spinal. We want to make sure that the spinal hasn't gone too high. Like, oh my gosh, my fingers are all numb now for some reason. So hemodynamic stability, their temperature's good, baby's good, they're not nauseated, they don't have a headache. And usually I stay with them for about 10, 15 minutes along with the labor and delivery nurse. And then I sign out, obviously, during that time too, all the meds that I gave them. And then my job after I sign out is then to go make sure that, you know, if there's any other C-sections to do or any other epidurals to do. What we do at our hospitals, we take 24-hour in-house, you know, OB calls. So we are there 24 hours and our group is there 24 hours, seven days a week, 365. So I'm basically, you know, in charge of all the other patients that need anesthetic services. So in the hospital that I work at, it's Mm -hmm. similar where they do, they don't do 24 hour call, but they do different shifts, but especially like on the weekends, there's only like one of them for Mm -hmm. like the whole hospital. So is that how you guys do too? Yes. Yes. There's only one of us. And so if there's a slow period on OB and you you know, I'm never going to say that (laughs) when I'm there. Okay. I'm sorry for those people on OB called that, right? And I just said the S word. I won't say the Q word, but we are also called down into our emergency room for regional blocks, intubations. We're called down to our ICU very often for intubations and central lines and arterial lines and, you know, any kind of management that they need, especially with COVID and whatnot. But there is another person on call at our hospital on anesthesia that is just for the operating rooms too. So my job when I'm on OB call is OB first. Like it's literally like if somebody has something going on, I'm in an epidural or I'm in a C-section case, I'm like, sorry, go find somebody else or go call the first call person or the second call person. I am tied to OB. And I think that's appropriate because as you know, things in OB can quickly. Woo! Yeah. Baby goes like this. Woo, <laughs> yeah. Let's go back real quick. Quickly. <laughs> and that's getting back to the second part of that's what, what happens. Yeah. Yeah. What happens when there is a emergency C-section? And that's when like literally my, that is a goat rodeo. That like, is a goat woo, rodeo. Woo, woo, woo. You know, yeah. we have the operating room always set for an emergency C-section every morning that I get there at 7 a.m or actually before that, because I need to get signed out and I'm getting the other anesthesiologists out. I'm pulling up, not drawing them, but I'm getting the drugs ready for an emergency C-section because I'm basically planning for a general anesthetic, mm-hmm. you know, especially if it's a crash. Mm-hmm. So I'm getting my tubes ready, my laryngoscope ready, all the drugs ready, all of it's ready to go. Even if there's nobody on the OB floor, that is, you know, I, I don't care yeah, because if I don't set know, it up, you never know who's going to be coming, wheeling I'm, into triage with a prolapse exactly, cord or like exactly, something hanging out. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I am asking for it. If I don't, yeah. I also have, you know, I usually check to see who also is on first call and second call. And I have their numbers on speed dial cool. because the minute they call me there, I'm in the patient's room. And so I, you know, the minute they call the charge nurse calls, I'm in the patient's room and I don't leave their side. I already have drugs in my back pocket also, like the Mm -hmm. local anesthetic to Mm -hmm. slam in Mm -hmm. because 
this time, time is so key, right? Yeah. To get that baby out safely. So I am numbing them up as we're being wheeled back into the operating room if they have an existing epidural. Yeah. If it's urgent and the OB thinks like we can do a spinal, we can attempt one, but I don't jack around with it. If I can't yeah. get it on the first try, I'm like, all right, you're going to sleep. Yeah. And the worry before in the past was like, oh, difficult airway because of progesterone and all the hormones you have. Mm-hmm airway swelling and you get these breasts that are, you know, because you're going to probably have milk coming in soon. So they're kind of up by the neck and you're just like, before that was an issue. I think now with the video laryngoscopes that we have, that has become less and less of an issue. Oh, that's interesting. We still have to do rapid sequence, you know, intubation because you have this big baby pushing up on the stomach, even Mm -hmm. if you haven't eaten, but a lot of these people can come off the streets and they just had something to eat. So Mm -hmm. it's still, you know, you know, cricoid pressure, rapid sequence, but I don't find that difficult intubation is that as much of a worry as it used to be in the past. But if we want to get the baby out quickly, it's definitely like GA if they don't have an existing epidural. Yeah. Yeah. Go, go, go. Well, you mentioned that you don't work with CRNAs, but have you Mm -hmm. ever worked with CRNAs in the past? And do you feel like you can touch on like what a CRNA would do versus like what a general anus like an anesthesiologist would do in terms of the situations like yeah so like okay. in a c-section i know sure. you know like uh-huh. usually the anesthesiologist comes in and do, does the spinal mm-hmm. and then the crna kind right. of monitors and i guess it depends on what kind of like c-section we're talking about true if, if it's true <laughs> but to answer your first question yes i have worked with crnas i think they're fantastic i think yeah. they're a great adjunct and like they're valuable they're so valuable to the healthcare team and they obviously make my job a lot easier too but then they do put on more responsibility because if you're paired up with a crna that means you also have more rooms to cover if it's a routine c-section that is planned and scheduled usually what happens is yes i place a spinal i you know sign out with the crna they're there during the entire case i'm usually there at i usually come back you know, periodically to make sure that everything's going well, but our surgeons are so fast. They're done in like 45 minutes. So yeah, Yeah. sometimes it can take longer. I'm usually there at the end and I help drop them off to pack you, talk with the patient again. But before the spinal's placed, I'm there with a CRNA, you know, consenting them, going over their medical history, coming up with a plan. If it is a goat rodeo, no, all hands on deck. You know, it's, it's, I a, like that it's term, a crash. Brody, I'm I just, write yeah, that down. <laughs> yeah, it is my, it is, you know, it's seriously, it is all hands on deck. You know, we manage the patient together and I, you know, if it's a crash, I'm not leaving because it's usually yeah. there's something else going on. Yeah. And I want to be there when the baby's delivered because I may need to help with that baby. Mm-hmm. And we have great NICU too. I never want to get in their way. They know what they're doing, but yeah. there's always that possibility. So I never leave the room because it's like the more hands on deck, especially for a crash. I'm not messing around. Yeah. Yeah. So I usually sign out my other cases that are going on to another anesthesia. Like I had done that when I had worked with CRNA, sign out to another anesthesiologist to pick up the extra cases while I'm in the crisis. All right. The sound of that baby crying means it's time for this week's segment of Birth It Up Babies. So this Birth It Up Baby is from Instagram. She says, hi, I just wanted to let you know that I took your natural series course back in February. I was so afraid of labor. I was present during my sister's unmedicated birth four years prior and got traumatized. Best birth control ever, LOL. (laughs) But even so, I was determined to do an unmedicated birth, but also wanted to know my options in case I changed my mind. 
I was feeling lots of anxiety towards the end of my pregnancy, but after taking your course, I felt much more at ease. I kept thinking to myself, I can do anything for 10 seconds. Yes, that is something that we definitely teach in the natural series. And that helped so much. I had my baby girl on March 15th, completely unmedicated. Thank you so much for all you do. Oh, that one is such a good one. If you want to check out the course that she took, she took Birth It Up the Natural Series, and you can head over to mommylabornurse.com and click on the natural series. All right, let's get right back into this week's episode. All right, so let's transition now and talk about epidurals because that's like kind of the other, you know, big role that you do, you know, when you see OB patients. So I've talked about it on here before on the podcast and I have a whole blog Mm -hmm. article and in our birth courses, you know, I talk about in detail, like what is getting an epidural like and what is the, the, you know, placement like and what is the procedure like? So People know it from a nurse's perspective, but do you mind sharing from your perspective? Sure. Like if somebody, call, you know, if I say, Hey, Dr. Prince, um, mm-hmm. my patient in room four needs an epidural. Her platelets are good. She has had one before. Then yeah. like what, then what do you do? <laughs> so after I get the phone call, I usually, what I do is obviously Epic and electric med- electronic medical record. Yeah. Before I go into the patient's room, I want to make sure that I know what I'm talking about. So I look over their medical history and make sure that there aren't any other contraindications to an epidural because yeah. platelets is definitely one consideration, but some people are on blood thinners and when did or they mag, last stop? They need yeah. like, to, yeah. Right. Yeah. When did they last <laughs> stop their blood thinners? You know, caveat too, some people worry about aspirin. We can place epidurals when a person's on aspirin. Some people have had back surgery before. Where is the incision? Where are all the, you know, rods placed? Was the dura like, you know, breached during the surgical, you know, during their surgery? You know, what levels are we working at? Is there a baclofen pump? You know, like you just want to make sure that there are no major red flags where we have to actually sit down beforehand. And our OB group is really good about coming to us and be like, Hey, we think this person needs an anesthesia consult, you know, 10 or 15 weeks prior to delivery. So we can Mm. have a plan and everybody is on the same page because like I said, we have a different anesthesiologist every 24 hours, you know, practices may vary. One person may be comfortable with one thing. Another person may not be. So we have to have a plan. So I look up the patient, look at their labs, look at any prior, we have labor epidural notes, like what anesthesiologists have done in the past. How deep was it? What level was it? What med did they use? All of that stuff. So I go in there and I'm like, all right, I have a pretty firm grasp about this patient. And then I just review it with them. And then, you know, about their medical history do my physical exam, which includes the mal- like the airway exam when people are like, why are you asking me to say, ah, you know, I'm like, I want to yeah. make sure that your airway's good. <laughs> yeah. And then I take a look at their back, make sure there's no like crazy scoliosis or back curvature. And then, you know, we sign the permission slip and then we go ahead with the actual procedure itself. With informed consent, I go over, you know, obviously the benefit is that they're going to have reduce sensation of labor contractions. I always kind of warn them that, you know, the way that we do epidurals now versus the way they did them in the 1980s, those are really heavy handed. Women could not feel much of anything. The way that we dose them now, women will feel more of a sensation like, oh, okay, but you can nap through them. Mm -hmm. Okay. Like you can take a nap, but you'll still feel your contractions a little bit. 
So that's obviously the greatest benefit, but there are side effects. Like let's not, you know, sugarcoat this with any medical procedure, any treatment, there's always going to be side effects. One of the major things that we worry about is a major drop in blood pressure. And that's why you give fluids beforehand Mm -hmm. to kind of help mitigate that. And that major drop in blood pressure, especially for people who have heart conditions, whatever, and even normal people that can trigger that nausea that a lot of people feel with spinals because mm-hmm. it's like that blood pressure going from yeah. 130 over 60 to oh 85 over 40 oh yeah, yeah. and you're it's gonna, like that yep, yeah you're gonna feel nauseated <laughs> yeah so we usually try to give a you know at least a you know 500 cc's of fluid before we get that epidural going the risk of postural puncture headache i talk about that that's one percent and that's when the epidural needle is actually kind of acting like it just breached into the dura. So you're mm-hmm. not supposed to go into the dura mm-hmm. and that's a big needle. And that's what causes that, that headache. That's 1%. And there are other things, but the myth about back pain, we can talk about that in detail yeah, later. Let's talk, yeah. We'll save that for the, we'll save for that the for end. Later. Yeah. We'll save that for the end. But like <laughs> I go over the common side effects and then we go ahead and do the procedure. My nurses are so amazing. They already have like the cart pulled in there for me and they're, they usually have the patient position, they've already had everything bolus. I'm like, yes, like this is so amazing. And then the the patient doesn't have to wait for all that stuff to happen. So I usually, you know, I coach them again through the positioning and just kind of, again, do you want to know every single step or would you like to just have the major ones? And like, I kind of say like the biggest annoyance out of it is that big pinch, that big bee sting. And Mm -hmm. it feels like a bee sting for about 30 seconds. And that's me numbing up that area where I'm going to go. Yeah. Right? And I tell moms, it's not because it's like a, a big needle. It's really right. the medicine that's like stinging. Exactly. That's what you're feeling. Yeah. And honestly, I tried it and this is what I do. I try to time it with contractions. Like if they're about to have a yeah. big contraction, that's when I poke them yeah. because your body has a really hard time trying to find, you know, pain in two places at once. Like, yeah. yeah. And a lot of them are like, I didn't feel that because I was contracting. so much. <laughs> That's I'm smart. Like, that's good. And then after that, you know, like you got to hold still, we got to hold that position, that C curve. We want to look like that angry cat on that Halloween fence or a shrimp. Mm-hmm. And that really helps open up the vertebral body so we can get into that space. Mm-hmm. And before that even happens, it's like five minutes of drawing up drugs. So I'm talking again, like, what did you name your baby? Do you want to yeah. show your baby's name? Like, what's the nursery? <laughs> like, yeah. What's your theme? Is this number one or number two? Like, yeah. we talk about what it's like to be a boy mom or a girl mom, whatever. Like, I'm just <laughs> shooting the shit because like, this is very scary for them. But, you yeah. know, I know I was scared, but like, you know, just trying to help them with that. But the actual epidural itself usually goes in within one to three minutes, you know, depending on, you know, whether they have scoliosis or whatever, that can be a little tricky sometimes. And also don't be scared if the anesthesiologist asks, is this, do you feel this in the middle or do you feel this to the left or do you feel this to the right? Because that actually helps us Mm -hmm. because that helps, you know, the way that we actually find the space is landmarks and by feel. And so if we reach a bone at a certain depth and you say, oh, that's to the right, that's going to help me navigate that needle in the right, in the correct direction. Mm -hmm. So don't be scared that that happens. That doesn't mean that anything went wrong. So once the, we hit into the epidural space and the way that we find that again, it's with landmarks and you might see us fill up a syringe with um, saline. And we know we're in the epidural space because then we can push that saline Mm -hmm. into that epidural space. Any other space that won't happen except for obviously the CSF space, Mm -hmm. but that's, you know, much further back. Mm -hmm. And once we get that in, you might feel this like really cool sensation. 
once we hit that spot, that's when we thread that catheter. It's about the size of a fishing line. And I tell husbands, I let the husband stay or the partner stay. I have stay. one right here, actually. Yeah, it's the size of a fishing line. <laughs> yep. Right here. And it's very hard. Someone sent me like, one. <laughs> oh, yes. I got to set you one. <laughs> and, you know, we thread that in. And I always tell the person, like, because I have the partner is usually holding the patient's hand or whatever. I'm like, just make sure to move out of the way because this can make them kick you. Because it yeah. sends that electrical shock yeah. through. And that's because that catheter is tickling up against the nerves. And that can send that electrical zap. And like, you know, it hasn't happened that often, but you know, that it can happen. I've gotten kicked at like like three times, I think. Okay. And I mean in <laughs> your entire career, bad. that's not yeah, bad. It's not bad. <laughs> it's not bad. And some people don't even really feel the zings or it's yeah. very temporary. And it does go away. Very it's it does go away. And then we do what's called the test dose. Now the test dose, the reason why that's important is number one, we want to make sure that that epidural catheter is exactly where it's supposed to be, that it's not in the CSF space, which then it would act like a spinal, or that it's not in a blood vessel. So there are actually two things inside that test dose. And we say test dose because it's a small dose that we give through that catheter. And one of the medications in that test dose is epinephrine, because if it was in a blood vessel, epinephrine through a blood vessel, that's why we ask you, do you feel like your heart's racing? We monitor your heart and we get a baseline because if that heart rate starts shooting up, you know that epidural catheter is in a blood vessel and we don't want that. So then we have to redo it. Okay. No, thanks. No, thank you. <laughs> the other thing that we ask is, do your toes or your bottom suddenly get numb and heavy? And we do that test dose because again, if it's in the CSF, it's going to act like a spinal and not much of that test dose is you don't need much of that medicine in order to cause that, you know, mm -hmm. sudden, you know, dense feeling. Epidurals take 10 to 15 minutes for full effect. They start at the feet with warmth and tingling, and then they just slowly climb up. Whereas a spinal, it's like within two minutes, you're going to know that it's working. So mm -hmm. that test dose is super important to do to make sure. And once they pass that test, we tape it all up. I actually, the way that I tape it is if you have that little catheter going out, I have Steri strips and I actually make a hashtag with it like this. Oh, cute. <laughs> and I'm like, hashtag epidural. And people think it's hilarious, especially by millennials. And I'm like, you can like, you can take a picture of it and post it on Instagram with the hashtag there. Don't tag me though. But if you want to, you can, you don't have to. I love that. And then we then with that epidural catheter, that's like, just, you know, sitting there, we then hook that up to our epidural pump. And that has the local anesthetic and the low dose narcotic. Mm -hmm. And when I say low dose, it's like super low dose. It's way lower than any of the doses you would get IV. Okay. Mm -hmm. And as long as that infusion is running and that medicine is being delivered into the epidural space, the women are usually pretty comfortable. We do expect that as the baby descends further down the birth canal, that the labor epidural may not seem as effective mm -hmm. or, and especially when they're, you know, you enter the second stage, a lot of women don't get those, the lower coverage, you know, like L304, yeah. L5, S1. And that's where we call it the ring of fire for a reason. Yeah. And it's not because we turn the epidural off or it's not working. It's literally because of your anatomy and the the epidural is just not getting to that area. And mm -hmm. I always just kind of warn them that that may happen and that you're really close to having a baby. Mm -hmm. Other things about it. So I'm usually there, you know, the, for 10 to 15 minutes after, along with the labor nurse, 10 to 15 minutes after to make sure that we have good coverage. 
and that their blood pressure hasn't dropped too much or that their heart rate doesn't start picking up crazy because epidural catheters can move mm-hmm. and that they're getting good, you know, pain control in the 10, 15 minute, you know, time that I'm there. And then, like I said, the pump's set to a certain rate. You might have the, you know, certain hospitals will have pumps where you can bolus yourself, or you may have to ask your nurse for bolus. It really depends on, you know, what kind of pumps they have. But we set a basal dose, like a dose that's continuously running in the background and patients can sleep. Patients Mm -hmm. can sleep through that. It's really great. We love it. And at our hospital, we um, turn our patients every, our nurses turn our patients every one to two hours because as you know, it works by gravity. If one side's mm-hmm. getting numb, we got to turn you to make sure that it's the other side's getting equal treatment. And I'm there for troubleshooting. Let's say there's the epidural just, yeah, it was working before and now it's not working. So I'm on to make sure it's not dislodged. Sometimes the epidural space in some women is really large and yeah. we might have to give mm-hmm. extra boluses to get that coverage. And that's okay. Everybody's anatomy is just a little bit different. So I'm always on hand to kind of troubleshoot those things. Yeah. Sometimes it's easy as uh, there was a disconnection, you know, up top. And then it's like, all right, then we have to kind of address that. And yeah. Whatever. Sometimes people need, you know, a higher basal dose. And that's okay. That's exactly why we're there. You can't just set it and forget it with epidurals. You have to constantly be on it. And that's part of the game. Yeah. So at my hospital, we just get an order and we manipulate the pump. Do you guys control the pump or do your nurses? control the pump. So we control the pumps. We allow the patient control bolus though. Yeah. If we need to give a stronger bolus, cause yeah, so it's one eighth percent bupivacaine. So that's like really pretty weak sauce, I think. Yeah. But if some women, <laughs> you know, it's a light, it's lighter, you know, a lot of people do fantastic with that. And I run that at a rate of 10 cc's an hour, but you no, know, our nurses, Unfortunately, I wish sometimes they can reprogram because I'm like, can you just increase it by two? I know no, you have to go over here. Okay, yeah. fine. <laughs> like yeah. over there. You I know. know. And, no, it's weird how like yeah. some places we you're we're allowed to, yeah. but then I don't know if it's a state thing or I don't know if it's like yeah. a hospital thing. But it's yeah. probably a hospital policy. Probably. The pump for us is like the nurses aren't allowed to really program yeah. it. So I have to do all the rate increases. And then if I want to give quarter percent, which bupivacaine, which is a higher concentration for mm-hmm. someone who, you know, I just need, I, I want to make sure that it's working well and that hasn't, you know, or I want to do a test with 2% lidocaine. I have to bolus those myself, which obviously makes sense. But there mm-hmm. have been times where that comes in really inconvenient because like I'm in the middle of a C-section. None of my partners are available because they're in cases downstairs. Yeah. And all they really want to do is give a bolus and they have to wait. And it's like, really? Yeah. So a lot of the times it's the OBs will step in and give a bolus if I tell them like, hey, okay. I really need this to happen. Can you just do this? And like, fine. Yeah. You know, there's other OB teams that are covering. So cool. That makes sense. Well, you talked a bit about side effects, but I was wondering if you can talk about a few more. I did want to know, I do want to talk about back pain because that's a big one. There's also that autism one that came up, study that came up too. Let's talk about that. And then I want to talk about hotspots too, because I educate on, you know, sometimes you have like a little hot spot that mm-hmm. comes back. So what exactly, like, why what do you mean happen? by, I guess so I call them hot spots because okay. like, it's just like a little place, you know, usually it's due to patient placement, but 
what the anesthesiologists, what I've been told is that Mm -hmm. the medicine, you know, it goes into all of these nerve roots and sometimes it just doesn't get all the way into this certain nerve root. And then Mm -hmm. you have like this little bit of pain right here. Right. Am I off or is that? No, you're not. No, you're not (laughs) off. And you call it a hotspot. I call it a window or a patchy spot. Yeah. Gotcha. It's just like a different way. And yeah, it probably deserves to be called a hotspot because that's probably the pain. We're like, oh my God, what is going on here? So usually, yeah. So it's usually because, yeah, it works by, you know, the epidural is in this, what we call a potential space. Mm -hmm. So it's not an actual space until you fill it up with something. Mm -hmm. And so it could be a volume issue. The patient may need a higher rate. It could be a concentration issue. The patient might just need a higher concentration of local anesthetic. And so what I usually do to treat those hotspots is number one, determine that it's actually working and that we have a good level Mm -hmm. for the rest of it. And I try to figure out which side is it? And then what I do is I usually have the patient turn on that side. And that's when I can give that bolus of that super concentrated local anesthetic. Yeah. And that between the extra volume and the higher concentration that will usually take care of it for most patients. Yeah. That makes sense. And that's what, that's exactly what we do too. I know sometimes moms talk about like one-sided epidurals too. Can you explain why that phenomenon happens? Again, so it's this potential space and you're fishing this catheter into this potential space. And, you know, these catheters are very flexible and bendable. And with this potential space, the catheter can have a potential to kind of hook or kind of bend Mm -hmm. over to one side more so than the other. And that's how you kind of get that one-sided epidural. And that usually tends to happen when you have too much catheter in that space. Okay. So we usually aim for about, you know, anywhere between three and five centimeters of catheter in the epidural space so that you don't have that potential for that hook to like Mm -hmm. kind of happen. And when that hook comes, it's like, it's just pointing at one, Mm -hmm. one side, right? And sometimes you can overcome it with volume, but really the way to treat it is to no, not place another epidural, but to sterile, put on sterile gloves, sterilize it again and pull back a little bit so yeah. that it kind of straightens that catheter out. And then you can give a little bit more volume to kind of evenly distribute things. And yeah, that's the way to treat it. You really got to pull it back. Yeah. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about back pain because I mm-hmm. know that that is one of those that, you know, we've heard, oh, I have, you know, I had an epidural with my baby and I still have back pain like years yeah. later or months later. And right. can you talk about like, like, why does this happen? Is that, if, sure. are they really, you know, caused by epidurals or is that a myth or is it musculoskeletal or like, mm-hmm. why does this even happen? Sure. Period. I think that number one, I will say that there have been no studies that can definitely say that like epidurals, link them together. <laughs> you can't link them together, that epidurals yeah. can cause back pain, that, that, you know, 17 gauge needle that I place into that epidural space is going to cause back. You think about it, it's just a small needle, right? Yeah. It's pinpoint. I could see maybe localized like pain and swelling a couple or even a week after. Yeah. That I expect. Yeah. Or a little bit of tenderness, especially if they couldn't get it on the first try and they did a level. Now you have this patch where they've attempted twice. That's Mm going to be sore. Like that's not, but like long-term back pain where that happens, like I had an epidural and I had back pain six months out, a year out. That is where I'm saying, I just cannot imagine. And there have been no studies that say that the epidural causes that kind of back pain. So there are a couple, and back pain itself is such a complex issue. But let me be 100% clear. Carrying a baby for nine to 
10 months, technically 40 weeks, 40 weeks. Okay. If we get to 40 weeks and the hormones that go along with pregnancy that, you know, give you laxity in your ligaments Mm -hmm. and that the weight of that pregnancy, and then the arch and the way that you carry yourself and the way that you waddle. And then if you have a vaginal delivery, the way that your legs are then kind of put in those stirrups and pushing for, you know, extended amount of time. Mm -hmm. I would also say that those things could definitely contribute to long-term back pain. Mm -hmm. And so it's hard to tease out. Is it actually the 17 gauge needle that was, you know, easily placed, no complications for the epidural, the epidural worked well, or could it be other things? Yeah. I kind of tend to be in the camp of it. It's probably those, you know, the 10 months that you've been walking around with this baby mm-hmm. and the pushing mm-hmm. that would cause the, at least the long-term side effects of back pain. Yeah. That makes total sense. So what are some of the common, you said blood pressure is probably the most common side effect that you see Mm -hmm. right after placement. Are there any Mm -hmm. other ones that you see? Nausea. Yeah. Nausea is definitely a big one. Yeah. Like those are like two major ones that I see the blood pressure drops and the nausea. Yeah. And they they usually, it's usually (laughs) you're vomiting because your blood pressure dropped dropped really fast and now you're feeling it. Here's the thing, like other things that we, I counsel my patients on, it can slow the pushing phase. And mm-hmm. on average, it can slow it down by 15 minutes for most women, because even with a light handed epidural, we can like, it's hard to push when you're not feeling that your contractions, yeah. you know? And yeah. so a lot of the, you know, the women that have epidurals or the patients that have epidurals are counting on the nurses to look at the monitor for them and say, okay, push. Yeah. Cause sometimes it's hard to, so that this coordination issue can be a problem and that can extend that second stage. It's also been shown in studies to cause fevers, epidural related Ooh, yeah. fevers. Yeah. Now, again, this can go on to this other whole conversation of like, does it cause C-section rates to go up? This, that is a whole controversial topic, but maternal that's a, fevers. That's another that's whole a podcast separate episode. podcast because I, <laughs> I was reviewing the data last night and I'm, you know, this is what I was taught in residency and like, here are the things that are coming out now. So I had this whole spiel, but so maternal fevers are common or not common. It can happen with epidurals. So then it's like, is she feverish because she has been laboring too long or is it because of the epidural? That's always a question that comes up. The other minor side effects, itching from the narcotic in there, extending the first stage of labor by on average about 45 minutes, which in the long run may not even be that big of a deal because that's an extra 45 minutes that you can nap. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. (laughs) (laughs) Epidurals also can interfere a little bit with oxytocin. So sometimes, as you will see, when someone has an epidural, you may need more oxytocin to augment their labor. Mm -hmm. And then that's a whole nother controversial topic about, Mm -hmm. you know, interventions and, you know, whatever. So whether or not it increases epidurals or do epidurals, my take on that, do epidurals cause an increase on C-section rates? It depends. And I don't, that's what I I say too. (laughs) And I don't think it has anything to do with the type of pain control a woman actually receives, but the type of hospital that they're in and their OB, right? Mm -hmm. It's their OB's practice and Mm -hmm. the hospital policies. Some women are allowed to labor for their first time for 20 hours and some OBs are like not comfortable with that. Mm -hmm. So that's my answer to that very complicated question that I know you want to make another podcast to. So that's fine. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, no, I totally agree. And that's what, that's what we say too, is that it's tough to correlate epidural and Mm C-section. It's easier to correlate some other interventions with C-sections, but not so much epidurals. And Mm -hmm. that is exactly what I say in my courses too, in terms of finding an OB and finding a hospital, Mm -hmm. finding an OB that you trust and that understands you and that aligns with your birth preferences, you know, because really at the end of the day, the hospital that you deliver at makes such a huge difference. Like the hospital that I work at, we have a very, very low, like one of the lowest C-section rates in the country, actually. It's It's like 14% or something like that. But the hospital down the road is like 32 or 33, which is like the national average, which think about it, you know, that's the national average. But I try to explain this to, you know, some of my friends who live there and they're like, oh no, I want to deliver at this other hospital because it seems nicer. Like they have, you know, like, like different weight. And I'm like, but just look at like their C-section rate is this. And you know, if if you're having a schedule C-section, like that's fine. But if you're a first time mom and you're, and you're trying to avoid a C-section, like just look at the differences here. Like it's it's a very stark difference. You can ask your OB, like, what is your C-section rate? And what are your What are your indications for it? Can I labor for a long time? If I spike a fever, what are you going to do? Are you going to blame it on the epidural or are you going to go ahead and like, you know, give me a time limit? Like, what do you do? And here's the thing, like, I'm happy to like educate women on this because sometimes they just don't even know what questions to ask. If you ask the right questions, you're going to find the OB that is going to be in alignment with your wishes. Yeah. And you want an OB that is happy to answer these questions. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Like they cannot be defensive about it. No, no. Cause that's a, that's a red flag too. That's a red flag. Well, for sure. I had one question that popped into my head while sure. you were talking. Uh-huh. So I want to know mainly for me, when I explain <laughs> the difference between a mom who had an epidural during labor sure. and now she's going back to the OR, she needs an unexpected C-section. It's, you know, mm-hmm. like just you know, not emergent, but we're going back and you're dosing up that epidural versus when she's getting a spinal, how like the epidural goes into a different space, right? Then Uh if you just do a pure spinal, but how do you dose up an epidural in that epidural space to make it look like a spinal? Is it just a heavier medication I'm assuming? Or like, how does that, do you see what I'm saying? It's like, there's these two spaces. Like, how do I explain that to my patients, how that works? Yeah. So we definitely do not want to. So in a spinal that, so, okay, let's start from, I got to get through this. So (laughs) spinals and epidurals fall under what we call neuraxial techniques. And that's basically when we inject local anesthetic into either the dura, Uh which is, you know, into the CSF that's called the spinal. And that Uh has sudden onset, not sudden, fast onset, you know, within one to five minutes, you're going to feel that spinal working. The problem with the spinal is that it wears off. Okay. And it can wear off in an hour and a half to two hours. And if that, if we expect that that C-section for whatever reason is going to take longer, then you're stuck with a patient that is awake and that is still being operated on. Mm-hmm. So we have to consider the length of the C-section, which OBGYN I'm operating with because they may, you know, have long, you know, historically longer times. And also with the spinal, it's a much smaller dose than the actual epidural dosing, like magnitudes of 10. Mm-hmm. So like, for example, if I were to dose an epidural, the volume is usually 20 cc's of 2% lidocaine, Mm -hmm. and then I'll put in a hundred mics of fentanyl. Mm -hmm. And that is for, you know, 
if they already have a pre-existing epidural and they're just going back and it's not urgent, mm-hmm. I give them that concoction. By the time they're being rolled back and prepped and draped, that's working. It's nice. Whereas if I'm doing a spinal, I usually use the bupivacaine and it's a little bit heavier. It's They actually put glucose in it. So it kind of oh. just kind of, yeah. So it doesn't rise because one of the things that we worry about with spinals too, is you don't really have a it's based on dosing, but we don't want it rise to where it causes heart issues. Like does the glucose make it heavier? Yeah, it's, it's called ah. hyperbaric. It's hyperbaric. Mm, cool. So it kind of just kind of sits in that area where it needs to go. Uh-huh. And I'm literally injecting at most two and a half cc's yeah. of, you know, this uh, local anesthetic solution that goes into the spinal space. So yes, we never want to mix up our drugs. We never want to give epidural dose to the spinal dose. And gotcha. the reason why is, you know, they're in different spaces, the absorption, all of that's going to be different. They totally act, they act the same in that they give you numbness, mm-hmm. but you know, it really is the dosing is different. The duration is different. I can always redose an epidural. Mm-hmm. You know, if for some reason we think it's going to be a long one, we're going to do an epidural. Gotcha. Dose it that way. But for a routine C-section that's planned in a health, otherwise healthy patient, that's a spinal. They'll get it yeah. done within two hours. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you yeah. for clarifying of that. Of course. Yeah. Do you have any last words of advice for moms who maybe are nervous about getting anesthesia? Maybe they have a scheduled C-section coming up or yeah. they're nervous about an, you know, an epidural. Right. I would say, you know, and here the, whenever I place an epidural, number one, the patients are just so overjoyed that it wasn't as brutal as others made it out, made it seem to be. So listen to your friends and their stories with the (laughs) grain of salt, because I feel like we always, when we tell our labor stories, it's always these fantastical, like, Oh my God, it was terrible. It used to be like, but a lot of them like, wow, that wasn't even that bad. Uh Like, I don't know why I was so scared ask the questions, ask every, like for me, asking questions just helps relieve my mind when I'm undergoing a procedure. And this is why you're around. This is why I'm around. I want to be able to educate them so they know what questions to ask and, you know, have a support person, you know, have a support person there with you. And we allow that too. Yeah. Um, It's questions, having a support, you know, person and asking me any questions they may have. And and following yeah. you on where can the, no that was my last uh, question where can yes. they find you on social media <laughs> so i am on instagram i am magnolia prince md that's m a g n o l i a p r i n t z m is in mary d is in dog on instagram and on tiktok i am balanced anesthesia and yeah they're kind of connected together you can find me on one by clicking on a link and vice versa yeah And yeah, I really enjoyed my time with you. And thank you for answering all these questions. I know like there's a whole other things like I wish we could have talked about, but this was a lot of fun. We only have an hour. I know. We'll have to come on again. Absolutely. I'm down for it. I'm down for it. Well, thanks, Maggie. It was a pleasure. Absolutely. Thanks so much. All right, guys, that wraps up this week's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in and letting me be a part of your motherhood journey. It is truly an honor. If you like what you heard, don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. And I love hearing what you guys think of the podcast. So if you're liking what you hear or you have a suggestion, I'd be so grateful if you'd go ahead and leave me a review wherever you're listening to help more mamas just like you find the show. What do you think? Are you starting to feel a little more confident about your pregnancy and birth? 
Well, if you want more, be sure to head on over to mommylabornurse.com slash podcast for today's show notes and a library of episodes so you can keep getting educated before your upcoming birth. And while you're over there, be sure to check out the blog and learn about our online birth classes. Find it all and more over at mommylabornurse.com slash podcast. See you next week. Same time, same place.